Check, test, are we on? <clears throat> My, that last song, wasn't that beautiful? So I want to ask you a question to start with this morning as we begin our message. How many of you remember Paco? Show me your hands. How many remember Paco? Huh. Well, you met him last week. What's that? Oh, okay. Well, good for you. Well, you met him last week. And you met him the week before that. And for many of us, we've been meeting him for years and years. And I'll explain what that means later. This morning, I'd like you to open your Bible. You'll have both your Bible text in front of you so you can look at the various translations. But you'll also have it above. What you're going to be looking at in this first slide, if you'll show me that slide, this is the road that it, it's a 17, about 17 to 18 miles long. And it runs from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this particular road uh, descends from uh, Jerusalem, which is well over 5,000 foot in elevation, all the way down to about 900 feet. So it drops in 17 miles, it drops an amazing 4,000 feet, approximately. It was this road that Jesus chose to use as a familiar uh, traveling spot and also a notorious kind of road that was quite fraught with dangers and perils to tell perhaps his most famous of all the parables that he ever told. And yet I think that as much as many efforts have been made to make use of this parable and many embrace the parable and understand the parable of the Good Samaritan as a story about the importance of being kind, of being compassionate, of showing concern or care, even self-sacrifice for someone in need or someone who is suffering. As I uh, did some research this past week, the way this particular parable is approached you can see it in the titles of these messages. These are all 45 to an hour long message. One title for this particular text, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is Life Ruined and Rescued. Okay, we see that, don't we, in the story. Another one said, Don't, don't tiptoe past the dying, was his message. Another was, Falling Among Thieves. Another titled his message, You Are Headed the Wrong Way. Somebody else used the sort of winsome approach of titling it Some Neighborly Advice. Then somebody else took it up and used it as an analogy of the condition of the church as they saw it, and so they entitled it The Half-Dead Church you know, left on the roadside. This one said, don't kick a man when he's lying down. Another one said, having compassion, making a difference. And then one said, love's long journey. A journey of loving those that are in need. And we would be the first to admit that the Bible certainly upholds the importance of love the importance of self-sacrifice, the importance of having kindness and compassion and care for those that are in need. We have no qualms with that. But is that what the parable is about? This one, of course, shouldn't surprise any of us. This is a more recent title, Social Justice and Mercy. We should have seen that coming, right? So they have taken up Christ's teaching harnessed it for their own purposes and said, see, even the Lord was all about social justice, and so on. 
Now, we're not against social justice. I'm just saying, God's sacred word needs to be handled with reverence and fear that we accurately represent the text of Scripture. So, this morning what I want to do, and you've heard me say this many times, one of the principles that's so crucial to understanding what the Lord meant by what he said is the context. Now all of us, unless we've become so jaded we've just turned off the news entirely, if you watch any primetime news at all, you are just struck by how easily it is to uh, cherry-pick a situation or grab somebody's statement out of its context, leaving behind what he said before and what he said after, and just pulling it out, putting it on the Saturday Evening Post headlines and getting some political traction with it. We see it happening all the time. And we may as well call it what it is. It's just downright dishonesty. That's what it is. Deception and dishonesty for one's own purposes and their own agenda. Now, what I want to do today is see the parable of the Good Samaritan in context so we can understand what it is. And there is really only one main point for today's message. I don't have a bunch of points for you to write down, so it's not going to help you to have paper, paper and pen out. I believe that there is one central message, even though we'll see some wonderful things, and it is this. We've got to get people lost before we can get them saved. We talked about this in our prayer meeting this past week, and it got me to thinking, so I started digging in the Word, thinking about this very thing. Well, did the Lord ever do that? Did the Lord ever go to links to help somebody see their lost condition so that he could point them to himself. We've seen earlier in our reading in Galatians that a man is not justified by the law or by any self-righteous performance that he may offer to God. And let me say this. My brothers and sisters, it is an astonishing thing when we really take this to heart. Think about it. Right now, there's about 7 billion people on the planet. And if you go clear back to Adam and go to the last breathing man, we're talking about perhaps hundreds of billions. And yet, amidst the mass of humanity, from beginning to end. Did you know and appreciate that there's only one man that ever left this world and went straight into the glory of God's holy presence on his own merit? No one else ever goes to heaven on their own merit. No one. He alone who is at the right hand of the Father. Now, let's look at the context. The parable of the Good Samaritan in its context. We're going to start by looking at verse 17 of this chapter. As you know, we are in Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, we take up this account where the disciples, the rejoicing disciples, come back to Christ, and as they are rejoicing on what happened as Christ sent them out, they also receive a mild correction, a mild rebuke from the Lord. Look at verse 17, and you can follow up above if you want. It says there in the text of Scripture, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you, you disciples, you followers, and this isn't just the 12, if you notice, this is 70. 
And as soon as we see that, we know that there is a power that resides in the child of God far beyond what any of us recognize. By virtue of the new birth and the new life we have in Christ and our union with Jesus Christ, His power is in us to stand in the midst of darkness. And so look at what he says concerning the 70. Behold, verse 19, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Wow. The Lord says, as you walk in obedience to me and walk in the power of my spirit, darkness cannot injure you. It can attack you. It can tempt you. It can try to deceive you, but it cannot injure you as you walk with me. But here's the mild correction, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. What's he doing? I think he's saying, okay, you've got a taste of my, my authority and my power. Don't get intoxicated with it. Don't start to make an idol of my power in your life. But, but what should you rejoice in? He says, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written or recorded in heaven. Be grateful for your salvation. Be grateful for your place in heaven through faith in me, right? Now, there's nothing here that's difficult to understand so far, but we're building towards a context. The second thing I want you to see is the rejoicing of Christ himself and the reasons why he rejoices when these 70 return. Look at verse 21. At that very time, he, speaking of the Lord, he rejoiced greatly. Okay? Now, the author, Dr. Luke, inserts greatly to qualify the kind of rejoicing Jesus was doing. He was really rejoicing about this. He was grateful for this. He was moved by this. And so at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have done two things. You have hidden these things. You wouldn't think, I mean, our whole task is trying to help everybody understand, right? Isn't that what Christian education is all about? Mary met with her high school group this morning, and Mary was wanting, and she, with her and Josh teamed up, they wanted their students to understand, not to hide it from them. But here the Lord says, Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Who are the infants? The 70. Who are the wise and intelligent? Well, we're going to meet him in a few minutes. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And then he explains what he means. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses or wills to reveal him. And then watch verse 23, and put yourself in these verses, because this is a staggering statement. Verse 23, turning to the disciples, the 70, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. What did the Lord just do? You know what? It's difficult for us sometimes, I think, from our vantage point. Here is the first century 
and Christ is speaking to the 70. And he has not gone to the cross to bear our sins yet, nor has he been buried and raised from the dead. So he's talking to the 70, and he's telling them these things. Now 2,000 years passes, 2,000 plus, and now here you and I are in Kettle Falls, Washington, sitting here with the word of God open before us. And Christ is saying, you people of mine that know me, that have come to justification by faith in me alone, apart from the law, you whose eyes have been opened and ears have been unstopped, don't you know that the whole Old Testament period, the prophets, the seers, the kings, the psalmists, all of them long to see and hear what you are seeing and hearing concerning me. How privileged are we, brothers and sisters, to have this understanding? It, it, how dare we allow it to become old hat? It should never be old hat. We should always stand struck, awestruck, that God says the whole history of the Old Testament and those who long to see and understand the Messiah, the anointed of God, the Son of God, his perfect sacrifice, and now his reigning high priest and king, they all wanted to understand. And you're sitting here, and you get it. Why? Because, Father, you have hidden these things from the wise, the intelligent, the self-assured, the self-confident, the self-righteous. And you've revealed them to the broken, to the humble, to the trusting who have turned to me for salvation. Thirdly, we see in verses 25 through 29, the self-righteous lawyer and his blind condition. There in verse 25 we read, and a lawyer stood up. Now, you shouldn't think of this lawyer as a civil lawyer, like you'd go look for an attorney. This is a Jewish lawyer, meaning he is an expert in the Old Testament law of God. And an authority on the law of God. He stands up and he, and he puts Jesus to the test. Now that tells us a little about his, about his motives, at least. He's testing Christ. And at first we might say, well, maybe he just genuinely wants to know if the Lord is on the up and up or not. Maybe his motives are good. But as we read further in the story, we find out, no, they weren't good. So we don't know that yet, but we find out later what kind of condition this man is in. So verse 25 and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that was the perfect question. And he asked the perfect person to answer it. In fact, the very law that he depends upon was given by the Lord himself. He's standing before the lawgiver, right? God in the flesh. And so Jesus responds to him, verse 26. And Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? You're an authority on these things. You're an expert in the Old Testament law. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? So he throws it back to him and says, you tell me. You just called me a teacher, but you're a lawyer. You're an Old Testament scholar. You're an expert in the law of God. Okay? And so he responds in verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? He accurately, precisely delivered the perfect answer. Intellectually, being one of the wise and intelligent, he, he nailed it. It was a bullseye. 
because he answered what Scripture tells us is summarizes the whole law in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with your whole being and your neighbor as yourself. But the intent of that law was never love the Lord your God with your whole being every now and then. It was love the Lord your God with your whole being all the time, your whole life. If you want to go to heaven and have eternal life on your own merit, then make sure you love the Lord your God with your whole being from birth to the grave and you'll have eternal life. That's the command. And then on top of it, your neighbor. Now, watch his response. Verse 28. And he answered Jesus, or Jesus answered him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But, verse 29, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What's going on with this man? Well, this man is blind. This man is lost. He actually thinks because he knows what the book says intellectually, he's actually living out the truth of the book. He is kind of the ultimate in self-delusion, self-deception. He actually thinks that he has kept these two great commandments with the exception of, well, let's, there is a little bit of wiggle room as to who my neighbor is. What is going on in this encounter? You know what's happening? It's, what's ha it's the challenge that faces every one of us as a witness of Christ. We can't get people saved. We can't get them to Christ. We can't get them to the cross or to see any beauty or excellence or desirability of Jesus Christ until we get them lost. We gotta get them lost because they don't believe they are. And now we're living in a time and a culture where the ideologies, the philosophies, the trends in our culture, all of this stuff's coming down the pipe and social media is causing it to spread with a, with a force and a permeation and a, rapid, a rapidness that world history has never seen. I mean, we got to wake up, brothers and sisters. We are in a time unlike any time in the history of the church. We really are. Now, I don't mean man is different. He's just as fallen and sinful and lost in Adam as he ever was. He needs a Savior just as much as he ever did. We are the church. We are called to be salt and light, but we can't do it on our own because Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you should bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So it's a life of complete dependence. Lord, unless you work through me, there's just, it's futile. But you work through me as I rightly represent the gospel. And here's what's happened. We've jumped right over what Christ is emphasizing to this lawyer and gone straight to, what if Jesus should have just said to him, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Right? No. Because our Lord with eyes like fire, with penetrating discernment, could see that this person was embracing full out staggeringly blind deception. This man is really saying to Jesus, I, I merit eternal life. I will go to heaven on my own merits. Does any of us in this room dare to think that we can stand before the holy blaze of God's glory 
on our own merit. You want to stand before God and present your credentials to him? Anybody want to? No. But this man believes this. And so Jesus, you know, right here at this point in the story where he says, um, and wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right there, Jesus should have said, come on, boys, gather up the bags and stuff. We're out of here. I'm not going to cast pearl before, pearls before swine. This guy's so blind and utterly lost that he can't see anything. And he's not listening. And he's full of pride and self-righteousness. He doesn't know how desperately he needs the forgiveness of God for his sins. But Jesus didn't do that. In a show of mercy and compassion towards this man, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And the story of the Good Samaritan is not to reinforce the man's deception. It is not to say, go out and be kinder and more compassionate and you'll have eternal life. He's trying to show the man how utterly lost he is. Are you following me? Everybody with me? Wake up, everybody. Do we, do we need to do some calisthenics this morning and wake up? I need some, I need that. I got to have some, there we go. Now I've got you. I'm not just talking for talking's sake. This is God's holy word. And we have misunderstood this parable. And part of it is because part of it results in that we have forgotten that the whole gospel message to people is that whoever we're talking with, if they are banking on their own merits to get to heaven, we have got to demolish that. If we really love them, we have got to demolish that deception or they'll never see their need for, the, for, the, for our sweet Savior and the blood that he shed on the cross and the death that he died for us who will believe. So Jesus tells a story, verse 30. And so he responds to the man's question, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 4,000 foot decline, about 17 miles, through uh, robber, highwayman, thief, thief infested crevices and cracks and places where you could ambush, you could be ambushed. Everybody knew it. Nobody traveled it alone. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him. And this idea they stripped him and then they beat him. The word beat's a very strong word. It means they repeatedly beat him and beat him and beat him. They could have just roughed him up and taken what he had, but these were bad dudes. They were they were ruthless and brutal. They beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. And at this point of the story, you see this man, in the story that is, He's been stripped and beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And in the story, this little glimmer of hope comes up when a priest comes by. Now, interpreters have done some interesting things with this story. They've said, well, the priest, um, he may have thought that uh, the man was receiving what he deserved. The man was a sinner, and he was under God's judgment. Um, others have said, no, the priest was on his way to do some kind of priestly duty and he couldn't handle a man like this uh, because he would become defiled and it would mess up his ministry. 
And on and on they go with all these ideas of why the priest and why the Levite didn't help. Do you know why the priest didn't help? Do you know why the Levite didn't help? Because they didn't exist. This is a story. These aren't real people. What we need to understand, Lord, what are you meaning by your own story? Not trying to dig into his story and make up our own stuff as we go. The priest doesn't exist. In fact, the guy on the roadside doesn't exist. It's a story to illustrate one single thing. That a person has to understand how lost they are before they'll ever long and cry out for salvation. That's what's happening here. It's not a story. And I'm not faulting, by the way. Every year at Christmas time, Kathy leads up. We all go and get boxes and fill them with children's things. Who are we doing that for? What organization? Where'd that come from? This story. Now, I'm not faulting that because elsewhere in the Bible, we're told to be kind and be compassionate and do for others. But it misses the meaning of this parable if we think that's what it's about. Jesus is exposing this man's deception. Now the story gets really thick. Verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now remember the man's condition in the story. He's half dead. We would say he's in critical condition. He's bleeding. He probably has internal, internal damage, broken ribs. Who knows? Half dead is bad. So the Samaritan sees him and feels compassion. And verse 34 says, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds. That takes some care. Do you see him there on his hands and knees on the, on the side of the road in the ditch? If he doesn't have any extra clothes in his bag with his, with his beast of burden, his mule or donkey, if he doesn't have any with him, he's tearing off his outer clothes and ripping them into uh, strips and he's binding up this man's wounds. And he pours oil and wine on them. Oil to soothe, like a salve. Wine as a disinfectant, being fermented wine as a disinfectant because there's alcohol in it. He's cleaning him up. He's taking. This is an ancient guy who works with the EMTs. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You miss the story. You really miss what Jesus is saying here. If you don't see the the distance to which the man in the story goes. He's cared for the man. He's cleaned his wounds. He's wrapped him. Now he's on foot somewhere between Jerusalem and, and Jericho and he is transporting this man on his own beast probably walking alongside if you use your imagination with a story like this, maybe holding one hand on him and one hand on the beast so he doesn't fall off. He was half dead, remember? And so he takes him to an inn. This inn is not a holiday inn. <laughs> this is an inn which uh, antiquity tells us there were inns like this. These were places, they were unseemly places. They weren't places you would want to stay unless you were in an emergency and just absolutely had to. Oftentimes there was women of ill repute that worked there. It was not a very sanitary place. There were all kinds of problems with these inns, but at least it was a place. And if you notice in the story, he takes him there and he doesn't drop him off at the, at the front door. It says he cared for him, and if you look and notice there, it's verse 35 tells us, on the next day. He stayed with the man and nursed the man through the night to make sure he made it. 
And then he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. A denarii, about 18 cents, a day's wages. I got to doing some studies and reading. Do you know what the average cost for a night over in an inn would be? It would be 1 32nd of a denarii. Which means what he gave the man at the inn initially was just about two months worth of lodging. And then, if that weren't enough, he tells him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay it. Jesus is telling, answering the question, who is my neighbor? Now you just stop and think for a minute. Let's forget the lawyer for a minute. Let's think about you. How many times, if ever, have you in your lifetime gone to those extremes to help a wounded, hurting, needy man or woman? In addition to that, your, your mortal enemies, because the racism and prejudice that runs between the Jews and the Samaritans is extremely deep. So you're actually helping an enemy and you were willing to take them and get them care and stay with them overnight and then say, I will pay for the next two months of their care. Anybody here want to claim they've ever done that? Even once. Now that's love. The second commandment, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know who the only person is in your life that you would ever go to that length for? <laughs> you. Just you. You're the only one that would go completely off the chart trying to find the best doctor, the best care, the best specialist that you could possibly find to help with this infirmity that you have. What does that tell us? I'm not talking about the guy standing out in front of Walmart. I pull over and grab my wallet and give him a $10 bill. That's not what this story is about. What is the Lord doing? He is saying, you are so utterly lost that you don't understand the high, high, holy bar of these two commands that are the circumference of the law of God. And if you've not loved your neighbor like this, then you've not loved God like this. What's the point of all this? Man alive, Pastor, you're upsetting us this morning. You're making us feel like sinners who need a savior. Yeah. I was chuckling this morning to myself. I didn't say anything. But, um, and I mean this in fun. But my background is a Cherokee Indian. Not a lot, but my mom was a quarter. Isn't that right, Kath? And so that makes me an eighth Cherokee. And so then I become a Christian, and scalping is out. I don't get to scalp anybody. <laughs> but then the Lord whispers into my heart, oh, yes, you do. You tell people the truth, and you shatter their self-righteousness. You scalp them. You take their self-delusion and their and their their inconceivable notion that they can merit salvation based on their own good works or their own religiousness or their own keeping of a law or their, somehow their good will outweigh their bad. Scalp that, that whole notion and the, and the parable of the Good Samaritan cinches it. None of us have lived like this Good Samaritan. And so on the next day, he took the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three, Jesus says, he's talking directly to the lawyer again now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man 
who fell into the robber's hands. And, and the lawyer said to him, well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Wait a minute, that's not what I do. I'm a religious ruler. I'm a scholar of the Old Testament. I'm looked upon as an authority in these things. Go and do likewise, that's going to turn my whole life upside down. In fact, if the Lord were speaking to all of us this morning and said, you want to merit eternal life, you all go and do likewise. We're all in trouble. Because the fact is, none of us do this. Oh, once in a while, we're sacrificial and we love and care. But let's be honest. We're pretty self-intoxicated, aren't we? Don't we live daily lives of self-interest most of the time? And every now and then, we get prompted and we actually help someone. All of this is to say, people got to get lost before they long to be saved. This man is being shown compassion and mercy by the Lord. The Lord is trying to open his blind eyes and unstop his ears. Why? So that he can be among the blessed. Blessed are you who see these things. Prophets and kings and seers and psalmists all down through the Old Testament long to see and hear what you do. And they did not. Father, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise, intelligent, the self-righteous, and the boastful who think that they're okay when they desperately need forgiveness and the mercy of God. The Lord didn't have to tell this story. He was, t he was taking the extra step towards this lawyer to open his eyes. And has he not taken the extra step towards you, toward me, to show us how profoundly when he went to the cross to die for, for Tony, he didn't go there because I had a half a dozen sins. I've been mostly a really good guy all my life. I just have a few that needed covered by the blood. Are you kidding me? I can't even get off the front porch of the law of God. Anybody here want to claim I, uh, that I have lived my life from beginning to end and I've had no other gods before thee? Anybody want to claim it? See how desperately we have broken God's holy law. That's why the law is a tutor that leads us to the cross, leads us to Christ leads us to a Savior who will forgive us. Well, back to Paco. You said you, ha you, said you hadn't met him. Couldn't remember him. Listen now. The city of Madrid, Spain, has a population of 2,905,000. That's a big city, right? 2,905,000. Listen to this now. This is true. Though the father, human father, knew it was a long shot, he loved his son and longed to be reconciled to his son for the young man had been defiant at home, disrespectful and rebellious, and the young man had run away so that he could be free to live as he pleased. So the, the father decided that he would, this last-ditch effort, to find his son. Several weeks of concern, prayer, the father with a broken heart and a longing took up a full page 
article in the Madrid, in one of Madrid's most prominent newspapers. And it simply read in large print. He paid, he didn't have a lot of money, but he could he paid for the large print so that it would be noticeable. And all the article said was this in large print. Paco, all is forgiven, son. I love you. Please come home. And then underneath those words was the postscript that said, meet me Saturday morning at 8 a.m. at Madrid Central Park. That morning came, and Paco showed up all right. Over 800 young men from the city of Madrid, whose name was Paco, showed up. We meet them all the time. But our culture has deceived them and they've bought into all kinds of philosophies and approaches that deny the shame and guilt and sadness that they feel morally because they have broken God's laws over and over and over, and they're lost. And we've got to love them and help them see. And you know who the most, the, the most effective witness in helping somebody see how lost they are? It's the Christian who's willing to be honest with themselves about how lost they were before coming to Christ. You see, the Christian who knows deep heart repentance in their own life has no problem talking about repentance to somebody who needs to. It's only the lawyers, the wise and intelligent, the self-righteous who have a hard time making themselves vulnerable and talking to someone about their need for repentance. But if you've been broken, you have no problem saying, you gotta be broken. Because the doorway into the kingdom is quite low. In fact, nobody goes through that doorway unless they're on their knees. The gospel, the gospel must involve helping people see their true condition. And the person best suited to do that is the person who's seen their own, right? Paco. I didn't realize how many times I'd met you. Before we have our last song, let's just pause a moment and pray. Join me if you would. Lord, what a contrast. The lawyer seeking to justify himself before you, standing before the son of the living God the lawgiver himself, justified in his own eyes, having no idea how utterly deceived and lost he was, and how he had nothing to look forward to but judgment. And then, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the 70 and the joy they had in knowing you experiencing the reality of your power in their lives, the knowledge that their names were written in heaven, that the Father delighted to reveal himself and you to those infants. Lord, we want to be a bunch of infants, children, before you. But what a contrast they are with the wise and intelligent, the haughty, the proud, the self-assured, and the totally deceived. 
Lord, we want to be salty and we want to be light for your glory. And we know that that will involve rejection. It will involve disdain and hostility because nobody likes to be told. Like this lawyer, Lord, no one we know wants to be told they're lost or shown how lost they really are. Lord, we want to, I guess, be instruments sharpened by you. We want to be a, a blade with a sharp edge so that we can be used in your hands. Liberate us from the fear of man and his rejection and disdain. And grant us new grace and new joy and salvation and new power in the truth of the gospel that no flesh is justified before you on their own merit. And then, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our Savior. You have become Jehovah Zidkinu to us, the Lord our righteousness. Because we don't have any to offer you. But you, Lord, being without sin, gave yourself on the cross for us that we might receive your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for the righteousness that's ours in Christ, the only righteousness that there is, yours. What a gift. What a gift. And then, Lord, I also pray that as we, can, many of us reading through your word in a year, as we read men like Isaiah and Amos and Micah and Jeremiah, we read the prophets, remind us that by your grace under this new age of the gospel, you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear what even these great prophets only understood in a very fuzzy, unclear manner. And yet we live and walk with the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Lord. And I pray and we all pray, Lord, if there are a few souls among us, we're glad they're here. We're glad that they're in worship with us. We're, we're grateful to you for that. And we, of course, we always want them feeling welcome and cared for and cared about. But Lord, if they are in the shoes of this lawyer and they think that they can merit salvation, merit heaven, oh Lord, show them how blind that is. And then give them the grace to humbly say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness. Change me and come into my life. Restore me to God, and grant me the gift of your righteousness instead of my filthy rags. Change him, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.